We're looking at this term in our devoted series at Teachable Moments, at how Jesus helped the disciples in key moments to grow and to learn. Those times when they lost perspective or when they'd failed, Jesus uses those moments as teachable ones to get the disciples to reflect, to help them grow and to change, to help them become the people he was calling them to be. It can be the same for us. When we've lost perspective, when we've failed, when we've stuffed up, Jesus will use those as teachable moments if we're ready and willing to learn, if we've got a teachable spirit, if we've got the humility to listen and to change. I guess that's the question for us all this morning. How teachable is my spirit? Jesus himself had a teachable spirit. Our reading today begins in verse 51 of Luke chapter 9 with Jesus literally setting his face towards Jerusalem. You've got to imagine a determination on his face. He knows where he's going. The whole of the rest of Luke's gospel is presented as that single journey. A single journey from the Mount of Transfiguration to Jerusalem and of course to the cross. But that decision to resolutely set out for Jerusalem is made in a teachable moment for Jesus himself. It happened in the far north uh, near Caesarea Philippi on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah joined Jesus there and Luke 9.31 tell, tells us that they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. In other words, they came to encourage Jesus, encourage him for the really, really hard road ahead. What did Jesus learn in that teachable moment? Well, Moses, remember, had stood alone against the greatest empire on the face of the earth. Moses was doubted by those he was sent to lead. He was ridiculed by those he stood against with nothing more than a staff in his hand. Who better to stand with Jesus as he faced the fear and the suffering of the cross? Elijah had faced down rampant unholiness, literally alone often, fed by ravens. Elijah had been stressed beyond belief, armed with nothing more than a sense of God's call on his life. And Elijah knew what it was to break just after his greatest success, break and run away into the desert. Who better to stand with Jesus as he struggled to start the road to that confrontation? Who better to strengthen Jesus not to break as he had done? In our terms, Jesus had his own teachable moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. With Moses and Elijah there to advise and encourage him. To encourage him as those who had faced impossible odds alone before and yet withstood them. Face them down for God's glory. So Jesus isn't above teachable moments himself. That challenges me, that challenges us to seek a teachable spirit. Are we willing to be taught? Are we willing to be changed by Jesus? First teachable moment on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus tells them about how to hold power about how to hold power. 
Jesus sends messages ahead of him as he'd done with the 12 at the beginning of Luke 9 and he'll do with a further 72 at the beginning of Luke 10. They're not just organizing sleeping arrangements, they're heralds of the kingdom of God. That's why James and John react as they do. It's not just a fit of peak about having to walk further or wait longer for dinner. It's because they see the villagers saying no to their king, saying no to the kingdom of God. When the 12 set out in Luke 9, they were sent out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal those who were ill. They were given, according to Luke 9, want power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. So there's no question that Jesus had given authority and power to them, had given them the right to bring the kingdom of God. You sometimes get the sense, as in Mark 6.30, they're clustering around Jesus to report all that they've done and taught. They're excited. They're pretty awestruck. Luke 10.17 tells us when the 72 come back, they returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So there's a real danger of this stuff going to their heads, that they're feeling like they're striding powerfully across the land, a bit full of themselves, swaggering a little as they bring the kingdom of God. And then this village says no to them. And they're offended. There's a hint of long-standing animosity here. The, the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Verse 53, the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. They, the latter only accepted the first five books of the Bible as having authority and the two groups had separated centuries before in mutual animosity. So the Samaritans won't welcome Jesus because he's heading to Jerusalem for the Passover. So there's all kinds of edges to this. The disciples are offended because the village is saying no to Jesus. They're offended. They're saying no to the kingdom that Jesus and they are bringing. And they're also offended because it's Samaritans telling them to get lost. So they want to show the Samaritans who's boss want to show the Samaritans what they're missing, want to show the village just who they're dealing with here, that they're not to be treated as of no account. And all of that comes out in verse 54, when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? I think it's clear they really want to do this. I think it's clear they really think that the power and authority that Jesus has given them means they really can do this. You get the sense that they're standing there ready to draw hands on the holsters of their spiritual guns, say, Lord, just say the word and we'll waste them for you. So it's a top of the class for faith. Yes, definitely got the point about bringing the kingdom in power, but no, absolutely bottom of the class for grace. Because when has Jesus ever acted like this? Jesus has never used his power and authority in a way that does anything other than bless, bless, deliver, empower. What possible precedent would make them think that this was okay? When has Jesus ever acted like this? The fact that Jesus has this power and authority and has given a measure of it to them doesn't give them the slightest reason to think that this could possibly be okay. The mere fact that Jesus doesn't, uh, the mere fact that Jesus can doesn't mean that he will. One of his many miracles is his restraint, which continues on the cross. But his, uh, his patience with us is immense. We have to remember that 
it, his patience with us is replicated with people who are even less deserving than we are, and sometimes we're not very deserving. One of his many miracles is his restraint. But there are times, if we're honest, when we prefer him to zap rather than woo. Sometimes we get impatient with God's patience. I think this is about their motivation, their sense of being slighted, their sense of offense at being told to get lost by Samaritans, and their sense of being cheesed off about having to work, walk further for accommodation, longer to wait for. It's nothing really to do with Jesus being honored. It's nothing really to do with the kingdom going forward. It's dressed up like that, but that's not the heart of it. It's about power and authority that has gone straight to their heads. After all, how does the kingdom grow in a scorched patch of earth? And in passing, James and John do that, and you've still got further to walk and longer to wait for your shelter and for your food. The point of the kingdom, the point of Jesus' ministry is blessing, delivering, empowering. It's grace, it's forgiveness. And their role is to teach about it and to practice its presence in power. That's why they've been given power and authority. Not to act like some third-rate gunslingers swaggering into Dodge City with, with, uh, with, with, with their holsters and their spurs clacking because they want to waste something. If the first teachable moment is about how to handle power, the second is about how to handle humility. Some were following Jesus because they hoped to gain from the kingdom. James and John, again, who just wanted to napalm the last village, will ask in Mark 10, 37, that Jesus allow them to sit at his right and left in glory. Now, that's not in heaven. They have an eye very much on this world, very much on having the ear of the new king of Israel. They're just appointed themselves kind of Lord Chamberlain and Chancellor. So yes, they're devoted followers of Jesus, but they also expect to gain from following him. The other disciples are furious with him, furious with them not for asking a question they felt was wrong, but for jumping the queue and getting in first. Jesus in Mark 10 redefines greatness for them. He says, to be great is to be a servant, to be the greatest is to be the slave of all. And the language changes there. And he, the son of man, lest they forget, gets to be a ransom for all of them. So many of those who followed Jesus, including even the disciples, had a very earthly understanding of God's kingdom, and they hoped, many of them, to gain from it on the inside track. I think that's what's going on here. As they're on the way to the cross, someone shouts from the side of the road, I'll follow you wherever you go. Sounds like an amazing offer. Here's someone ready to start right now and fall into step behind Jesus. But Jesus responds by saying, basically, why follow me? I'm homeless. I'm not on my way to a palace. Even the smallest creatures have homes, but I have none. Don't follow me because you think I'm on my way to a palace. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Don't follow me because you think you're going to gain, whether a place at my side or power in my name or a palace in which to dwell. Follow me only to pursue the kingdom of God. And know that's a humble journey. 
There's just the road. There's just the kingdom. There's just serving the Father. If that's not what you want, if you cannot handle that humility, that vulnerability, that uncertainty, then don't follow. The first teachable moment is about how to handle power. Second, about how to handle humility. The third is about how to say yes. If the first verse from the side of the road promises to follow Jesus, the second is challenged by Jesus to follow. It's the same words addressed to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, the same words addressed to Levi at his tax booth, the same words are addressed to someone at the side of the road. And his response, let's be honest, sounds utterly reasonable. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus' response seems utterly harsh. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet all is not as it seems. If the man's father was already dead, he'd be at home grieving under strict rituals, or at serious risk of death, he'd be at his father's bedside. He wouldn't be standing by the side of the road. Duty would demand that he was at home. Because of the fear of disease, bodies were buried within 24 hours, wherever possible. So that's not what's going on here. The phrase, let me go and bury my father, is a proverbial one in the Middle East. It means to submit to the authority of your father. Submit to his authority until he has died. If I were to put that in terms of my own life, had I obeyed this principle, I would have been free to follow Jesus only for the last four years of my life. If Jesus had said, come follow me to me at the age of 16, 17, which he did, and I replied like this, I would have been saying, yes, in 30 plus years time. So the man isn't saying that he's got urgent family business to attend to. He's saying that the authority of his father completely overrides the claims of God's kingdom. There's no contest. In contrast, Jesus challenges him to discern the presence and power of the kingdom right there and right then. He says the spiritually dead can look after the spiritually dead, but he must awake, he must rise to the challenge of being part of the kingdom of God. Another volunteer on the road to, in verse 61, promises to follow Jesus. And this time, he simply wants permission to go back and say farewell to his family. And you're thinking, how on earth can Jesus say no to that? Simply because he knows it's a shallow promise. Saying goodbye in the Middle East isn't a formal leave-taking, it's a request. It's a request for permission to leave. Even now in the Middle East, I'm told, people doing professional jobs in cities will go back to their parents in their home villages to ask for permission from their parents to change jobs, to move house or city. It's much more of a formality now, but it still happens. So this man can promise to follow. It's really easy to promise he can follow, certain that when he gets home, permission to leave will be refused by his family. That's a get-out-of-jail-free card right there. It's a shallow promise. And Jesus sees it as such. Think of when you're driving or cycling. You have to look over your shoulder. It's hard to keep going in a straight line. So it's the same with plowing. You'll miss areas. You won't do things evenly. It's difficult, I find, to even cut straight stripes when I'm cutting the lawn and looking in the right direction. But if I get distracted by uh, something left on the grass, like a golf ball or, shall we say, a canine deposit, it all quickly goes awry. If you're looking back, Jesus insists, then you're not going to serve the kingdom. The challenge, he says, 
It's to say yes to the kingdom and to follow through. Of course, in none of the three incidents on the road are we told how they respond. As such, we're invited to ask these questions of ourselves. How will we say yes? Wholeheartedly, or with many longing glances backward? Or by saying a yes we never really mean? A yes with no real follow through? Jesus himself had a teachable moment with Moses and Elijah. In our passage, we see him in teachable moments about how to handle power, how to handle humility, and how to say yes. So what does this mean for us today? It challenges us first to ask, where are we impatient with God? I think some of us are more with James and John than we care to admit where we think that God is too patient, where we think that wooing should maybe give away to some smiting occasionally, just occasionally, just to encourage the others. But God leaves room for repentance. That's true for you and me. It's true for those around us. He does that because he doesn't want anyone to perish, according to 2 Peter 3.9. His essential character is to be quick to show mercy and slow to become angry. His delight is to see people turn to him because they want to rather than because they must. So I get the impatience of James and John. I, I get their desire to see Jesus honoured and to take action on behalf of the kingdom. I get that. But when do we next hear of Samaria? After persecution strikes the church in Jerusalem, Philip goes and ministers there in the power of the Spirit. He doesn't find a napalmed village. Acts 8 tells us, For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Why? Because they had received the presence and power of the kingdom of God. Jesus could have napalmed that village. He could have napalmed Samaria, but he didn't. He gave time and space for God to be at work, and the kingdom did come to Samaria. Fire came down from heaven to bless, to deliver, and empower. Fire came down from heaven to save, not destroy. If we're impatient with God, if we're trigger happy, as we're James and John here, always, always, always remember that God's patience with us is his essential character. Swift to have mercy and slow, oh so slow to anger. I find myself, if I'm ever tempted to give up on someone, I always remind myself that Jesus has never given up on me. Where might we need to repent of our impatience with God? Where might we need to remember and celebrate God's extraordinarily amazing patience with people like us? challenges me, second, to ask, who do we let stop us following Jesus? Who do we let stop us following Jesus? I've been remembering my dad a lot recently, all kinds of funny things that he said over the years. So please hear me when I speak about my father, that I loved him dearly. But when I first became a Christian, it was in the teeth of my father's disapproval and opposition. That it was initially ridiculed, it hardened into opposition when it became clear it wasn't a passing phase. It wasn't something I was going to grow out of. 
there were quite a lot of arguments, particularly when I started to articulate that I felt God was calling me into church leadership. More than once, I was firmly told that I was wasting my life. He used to tell his friends I was studying ancient history. That was, that was what it was to him then, and it was more palatable than telling them I was doing theology. I'm not saying it wasn't difficult, nor am I saying I always got it right in the way that I stood my ground and that always handled it with grace, because I know I didn't. We were at odds about this for years, but never did it cross my mind to allow my dad to stop me following Jesus. Wherever Jesus took me, wherever he sent me, although perhaps not Bridlington, I was determined as I could to follow. I normally when I throw out something like that, which isn't in the text, I'll find that there's somebody here from Bridlington who I've just grievously offended. If there is anyone here from Bridlington or watching online, I'm sorry. And truthfully, my father came to Christ in the end. Who do you allow to say no for you? Who gets in the way of you saying yes to Jesus? Now, our son may well be following the same path. He believes he is. But honestly, we never said anything at all to him about believing him to be called. We simply have never raised the subject. Why? Until he did with us. Why? Because that was between him and his heavenly father. I have no rights to speak into that as his dad. I was never going to put something like that on him. It's not an easy thing to carry, especially not if you've not been called to it. We simply told our kids, both of them, we wanted them to follow Jesus and obey him. Uh, forgive me for being slightly schmaltzy. We had an amazing conversation where Sarah had just been called to ministry. We were on holiday at uh, Emlyn's place in France. Emlyn Williamson, some of you will remember. And we said, actually, we probably need to tell the kids and... Um, so I introduced it, then Sarah told her story of encountering God at New Wine and feeling called into ministry. And then Sam said, well, it's really interesting, Mum, you're saying that because I'm feeling very much the same way. At which point Mim said, over my dead body. <laughs> we simply told both our kids we wanted them to follow Jesus and obey him. Is there anyone in your life whose words or opinions are so loud they're stopping you following Jesus? Is there anyone other than Jesus who is determining your steps? And might there be any ways in which your words or your opinions are stopping someone else following Jesus, making it harder for them to follow? Are there any ways in which you have got in the way of others? And it challenges me to ask third, how teachable a spirit do I have? How teachable a spirit do I have? Several times I've been challenged over the years in leadership by some folks saying essentially, tell us something new, something we haven't heard before. We've, we've heard all of this before. We've tried all of this before and it didn't work. It happened a number of times over the years. And aside from feeling pretty crushed at the time, I remember, realized when preparing yesterday what I should have replied. Have you ever had that experience? You wish you'd come back with a good comeback? You go home and you think about the snappy thing you should have said. Well, it's taken me about seven years to come up with this. But basically, I should have said, if we're having to learn the same lesson again, I wonder if that's because we didn't fully get it first time round. 
we didn't put it into practice first time round. The greatest gift for growing as a Christian, aside obviously from the scriptures, the cross, the presence and power of the spirit, the greatest gift for growing as a Christian is a teachable spirit, a willingness to learn, a willingness to change, a willingness to trust, a willingness to fail because you're trying to obey, a willingness to stand on God's promises, a willingness to step out and have a go. Trusting that God will meet you. In what ways do you show a teachable spirit? How are we showing a willingness to listen, to change, to step out and have a go, to put it into practice? And remember, please always remember that while Jesus calls us to follow, and that's a call to sacrifice, and that's a cause sometimes to difficulty, to toughing stuff out. He also calls us to joy. He also calls us to peace. He also calls us to grace and to fellowship with him. Remember always the creation story that he came in the cool of the day, which is when it is cool in the, in the Middle East. He came in the cool of the day to walk with them. So yes, the call to follow is stark. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, it's sacrificial. But but we are called to life in its all its fullness. We're called to joy, to peace, to grace, to fellowship, and to love. So yes, it's hard. But there's no life better worth living than this. Jesus promised life in all its fullness. So how teachable a spirit do you have? How might God want to work it in and through you today? Are you willing to listen, willing to change, willing to trust, willing to stand on God's promises, willing to step out and have a go? 